0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 389th episode we're doing our Q&A. We have a lot of really excellent questions from both our Patreon and our Discord and so we're going to go through them. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Proa and a fun fact. Like always. Yes we always do. (laughs) But before we get into all of that we want to thank some of our patrons and this week we'd like to thank Ben, Elvie, Bernsasaurus, Lawrence, Luke, Paulacanthus, Joey, Miriam, Nicholas, and Shane Kylosaurus.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for being part of our community. Of course, we could not keep this show going without the support of our patrons.
0: Yes. And as you may remember, we're about to go on parental leave. So this is actually kind of the last episode we're recording in the set before taking off
2: yes that's why we're doing a special q a episode but don't worry we have pre-recorded enough episodes that there will be a new episode every week while we're off taking care of our new baby yeah and then we'll be back and i'm sure catching up on a lot of really great dinosaur news
0: yes and oh there is the caveat that we're going to come back after jurassic world dominion comes out to do an episode about that So we're not really disappearing, but (laughs) we'll pop in on our Discord server from time to time and stuff, I'm sure, too.
2: Yeah, of course. Even more reason why your support means so much to us.
0: Oh, definitely, yes.
2: All right. For our first question, we got, what dino of the day most surprised you or most interested you in researching for an episode? Good question. And uh, I'll take this one because been a while since garrett's done the dino of the day
0: <laughs> it has been a while
2: <laughs> we did a recent one on the dodo which technically counts right birds or dinosaurs and that one was a lot of fun because it was so much more to it than i expected i kind of thought there would be just maybe one or two papers and some i don't know more media type articles to read about but there was a lot. There's whole books, there's whole papers, there's all these different journal entries that people wrote about in the 16 and 1700s. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised since the dodo only went extinct a couple hundred years ago. So there were people with eyewitness accounts who wrote about them, though those accounts weren't always the most scientific, but they were enjoyable to read.
0: It was a lot more mysterious than I expected. I thought the story was just going to be something akin to the passenger pigeon. Mm-hmm. where Basically, people like to eat them. They killed all of them by eating them. Yep. Now they're gone.
2: And it w- wasn't the people, it sounds like.
0: <laughs> it was in maybe inadvertently the people by bringing in other animals. Oh, that's that true. killed them off. That's true. But yeah. And then the whole mystery about like, we don't actually really know when they went extinct.
2: Right. And then people didn't believe that they were real for a while. And then they didn't believe they went extinct for a while. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. But I also like the Dinosaur of the Day segments where there's a lot of history and stories around them, or dinosaurs that might not be as well-known, like Hylaeosaurus. We did an episode 240, and that one, you know, it's one of the original three dinosaurs named, but most people, they talk about Iguanodon and Megalosaurus. Mm -hmm. There's also some really cool Dinosaur of the Day segments we've done where there's been a ton of specimens found, so there's a lot to know about that particular dinosaur, like Tenontosaurus in episode 376, or there's some that have really interesting name meanings or origins, like Saturnalia did that in episode 369. Also, the really early dinosaurs, or sometimes they're classified now as dinosaur forms, but usually at one point they were classified as dinosaurs, so that they count, (laughs) like uh, Saltopus, that's episode 366. I mean, it sounds like I'm just liking all of them, but <laughs> I also really like our Milestone episodes because that often has a bunch of different dinosaurs, like our Hadrosaur Nanny in episode 350. We also have a really special one coming up in episode 400. It's only a few weeks away. And just as a hint, that has to do with some dwarf dinosaurs. Hmm.
0: I forgot what it was because we recorded it already. <laughs> <laughs> Guess I'll just have to look forward to it.
2: Yep. So yeah, the the things, there's a lot of surprises that come up and you don't, well, I don't necessarily know what to expect just by when I do my initial search for the dinosaur name.
1: Yeah.
0: Once you really get into it, that's when you learn all the nitty gritty details.
2: Yeah. And then there's often like these fascinating articles or notes that people wrote about something related to them years ago. And I love when those have been preserved and we can quote some of it.
0: Yeah, some of the most interesting stuff isn't about the dinosaurs themselves, but the people that found the dinosaurs and the sort of process of either discovering it or where it ended up in museums and that whole rigmarole because it can get really complicated.
2: Mm -hmm. Our next question is, what famous dino field expedition would you like to have been a part of? This was a hard one to narrow down, but I think for me, It's when Roy Chapman Andrews went to the Flaming Cliffs in Mongolia, because there's so much adventure, and they found so many dinosaur eggs and a lot of other really cool finds, including some really interesting mammals, and we're actually getting way more into that one in an upcoming episode, so I don't want to spoil it too much, (laughs) but a lot happened, and it was cool, and also just the fact that they named it the Flaming Cliffs.
0: Yes, yeah, the level of adventure of the Roy Chapman Andrews going to Mongolia with cars, from, you know, basically like Model T style cars in the desert in places where modern cars struggle to drive is almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But I would say, because the question for me is, what would I have liked to have been a part of? That's too much for me.
2: (laughs) Too much adventure.
0: It's too much sun. It's too much heat. It's too much sand. (laughs) (laughs) Too much difficulty. I'd probably go for a more recent expedition that uncovered something massive I'd enjoy the challenge of getting something huge out of the ground, hopefully in a less extreme environment.
2: (laughs) With some modern equipment.
0: Yeah, or at least, yeah, just some modern equipment in still an extreme environment. So I think the 10-ton Utah raptor block Mm, would be mm -hmm. super cool to have been a part of. Or the dueling dinosaurs. Those are two that come to mind for me. Something
2: where you know this is a really big deal.
0: Yes. And I also think any excavation on Mount Kirkpatrick in Antarctica would be really cool that's where they found cryolophosaurus that's probably the one that i would want to be a part of specifically for which expedition and it was found at thirteen thousand feet or four kilometers up on the side of a mountain in antarctica but it was in the early 1990s so by then they had good insulation oh, okay and they had helicopters i was gonna say that's not an
2: easy expedition either
0: but it would be really cool yeah yeah so maybe maybe the easiness it's just that i don't like the heat i'm i've find it a lot easier to imagine being in Antarctica than being in the Kobe Desert for some (laughs) reason, probably because I'm Scandinavian and I grew up in a very cold place.
2: (laughs) Our next question is, who of the early paleontologists do you wish you could have interviewed? And before we get into our answers, we inadvertently posted this question on our social media Uh really recently. We had it scheduled to go way out before we got this question, (laughs) but it works out. In terms of, you know, we get to talk about it now. And there were some really cool suggestions like, you know, you've got Barnum Brown, Sir Richard Owen, Roy Chapman Andrews, Mary Anning, Stephen Gould and Charles Walcott, Harry Whittington. I had to look that one up. He's a British paleontologist who's done Mm. a lot of stuff. So for me, it didn't say which one. The question Mm. wasn't which one. So that was good. And I had a hard time narrowing it down. You know, I started off thinking, yes, Mary Anning, Mary Mantell as well, and just other women who were early paleontologists, but maybe they weren't classified always as paleontologists. Because
0: mm-hmm, they rarely had degrees, although most people didn't have degrees back then, but they weren't usually accepted into the scientific community back in the 1800s or even
1: 1700s.
2: Yeah, but there were a lot of women who did important illustrations of fossils too. Oh, yeah. And laid the groundwork and there's this site called uh, museumoftheearth.org that has a bunch of it's daring to dig and they have early trailblazers and a whole list of fascinating women from the early paleontology days so i mean i'd probably go through that whole list but then <laughs> you know some more familiar names maybe like barnum brown uh george cuvier because he's considered the pioneer of paleontology so that would be interesting yeah also thomas huxley because He was one of the earliest people to find that link between birds and dinosaurs, and it would be really interesting talking to him.
0: Yep. Yeah, I think, too, people like Thomas Henry Huxley and some of these other people, if you tried to interview them from the past, they'd probably have way more questions for us Mm, than them. mm -hmm. So quickly, I feel like the interview would flip on you really quickly, because if you asked Huxley something... And you said, you know, basically, yes, birds are dinosaurs and everybody accepts that now. And then he'd probably flip it around and be like, wait, which ones? (laughs) How did we find out? How did that work? (laughs) Who found that out? When did that happen? But yeah, so that would be really fun to talk to some of these earlier people who figured things out with the little bit of fossils that they had and now have sort of been vindicated. But for me, I agree about the women. We know almost nothing about so many of them since usually they published under a male relative's name. Oh,
2: that's true. There are some projects that are trying to figure out, okay, who actually did this work? Mm -hmm. It's so hard to know.
0: Yeah, because even if so, in some cases, like there's Ilana Nopsha, who presumably found some of these dinosaur fossils that Franz Nopsha published on. Mm -hmm. but you don't know how much of it she was involved with. Did she excavate a whole bunch of them? Did she just find the first one and point it out to somebody? Did mm-hmm. she actually write the things and then they got translated or published under a pseudonym yeah, kind of
2: thing? Usually when you hear her name, it's like a one sentence. like She brought these fossils to her brother. Yeah. And then it's all about what he did with them.
0: Yeah. And Mary Mantell is sort of a similar story where they think that she was a little bit more involved with it, but it's hard to know exactly. Mm-hmm. So- I'd really like to know that. I'd also really want to know what early humans that found dinosaur bones thought of them. Although I'd need an amazing interpreter because they wouldn't speak probably much of well, the language he compared he to us. You might get
2: some cool stories on, you know, like how we've, we've heard about uh, giant bird stories or dragon stories, mm-hmm. that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I would love to know just like go back a few thousand years mm-hmm. to somewhere where there are a lot of dinosaur fossils, like say the Badlands, and talk to whatever people are there and say like, what do you think of this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, where did this come from? And just hear their stories and what they think of these dinosaur bones. I think that would be awesome. But yeah, I, in the more traditional camp of people that actually did publish a lot about dinosaurs, I would say Franz Napcha or Gideon Mantel and Richard Owen would also be worth interviewing, even though it might be a little bit prickly. I think it would be interesting to hear some of their opinions on things.
2: Mm -hmm. This next one is if you had to take a side in the Bone Wars, would it be Marsh or Cope? And I want to say, can I say Lady? Because (laughs) I felt really bad for him when I was doing the research on the Bone Wars. Yeah. (laughs) You're cheating. (laughs) Oh, but he was, you know, he liked paleontology. He was doing good work. And then he just got outfunded and out. I don't know, they-
0: Out hustled. <laughs>
2: out hustled. They basically ran him out of paleontology.
0: Yeah, that's a bummer. I also agree with you, though, that neither Cope or Marsh are particularly great figures. So I would pick Charles H. Sternberg.
2: Oh, yeah. Also- he was also
0: involved, in And
2: his autobiography was great. You could tell how much he loved fossils mm-hmm. and fossil hunting. And
0: then one of his sons was even more successful, sort of built on what his dad had done, which I think is awesome. But between Cope and Marsh, I would pick Marsh. Hands down, actually. Because before the Bone Wars, Marsh had debunked the Cardiff Giant, which was this 10-foot-tall statue claimed to be a petrified human. And I just think he was a really good skeptic in general, sort of going around, sort of spreading scientific thinking to people. And the feud also partly started because he was the one that pointed out Cope's mistake.
1: Mm. And Cope
0: was just sort of too proud, or at least it seems that he was too proud. And his pride was getting in the way a lot of the time. In just throughout his life, mm-hmm. at least the research you did, pointed to multiple times where he could have had a much easier time of something, but he was too proud to accept help yep. or to admit he was wrong or something like that. And so I think Marsh is a much better example of a scientist. Uh, Marsh sort of. was
2: pretty prideful too. He
0: was, yes. Yes. Which is why I don't he really like either of them. Didn't
2: give credit to anyone else or he didn't like giving credit to yes, other people.
0: For sure. But at least he was sort of Building on the scientific method a little bit more, I think, than Cope was. And Marsh also worked to help at least some Native Americans and became a friend of Red Cloud. True. Which is a really cool story. Like he showed up and he saw these terrible rations. The US government was supposed to be supplying lots of food and other supplies as part of a treaty, and they were giving him really poor supplies. And Marsh was really disgusted by it and actually reached out to the president of the US and was like, You got to fix this. And Mm -hmm president ended up firing the people in charge of that. And so he actually made some really significant change on behalf of other people. So I thought that was super cool. We didn't see any accounts of Cope doing anything like that. It doesn't mean he didn't, but we never saw anything like that. So I think that's cool. And also the last point for Marsh (laughs) (laughs) is that he was just a more successful paleontologist in general. 23 of his dinosaur genera are still considered valid compared to nine named by Cope.
2: I will say, though, both were important figures in that they definitely drove each other Mm -hmm. to these successes that they had. And if it weren't for them, who knows? Dinosaurs might not be nearly as popular as they are today.
0: That's true. Yes. And- they also both did a lot of damage. <laughs> yes. Because right, they were trying to betray each other all the time and sort of getting in each other's way. And... Oh,
2: they were far from perfect.
0: Yes. So they they both did a lot of good things and maybe even more bad things. <laughs> but yeah, I for me personally, I'm on the side of Marsh if I had to pick one of them.
2: Our next question is, will there ever be a chance that your favorite groups of dinosaurs, sauropods and ankylosaurs, could change? I say maybe. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty stuck in my ways at this point. Pretty attached <laughs> to the sauropods. And I love the idea that there were just these giant creatures roaming around.
0: Yeah, it's unlikely we'll find another group of dinosaurs that was larger than sauropods. Mm-hmm. So if the thing you like about them is their size, you're probably going to stick with sauropods.
2: <laughs> but I do think, and we've talked about this before, that therizinosaurus mm-hmm. are really awesome because they're so weird. They are. And they're in, you know, they're related to some well-known carnivores, but they eat plants. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I think therizinosaurus are already sort of my favorite. It depends on the day. I kind of like a lot of these dinosaurs. Ankylosaurus, I think, will always be my favorite. But in terms of ankylosaurs, there are lots of other dinosaurs I like more than just other ankylosaurs. I would say like therizinosaurus, sort of exemplifies what Sabrina and I like best about sauropods and ankylosaurs. They're sort of big and fairly menacing, but they only eat plants. Plus, their xenosaurus has the record of the largest claws of any animal ever on Earth, period. Which is such a cool thing to have.
2: Why did they have such large claws? They're
0: literally like a meter long, like three foot long claws, probably very sharp, which is just such an extreme (laughs) evolution. It's ridiculous. And for something that probably would be happy to never use them or rarely use them because they weren't skewering each other and they weren't hunting things with them. It was probably mostly for defense or maybe somehow using it for feeding, like stripping leaves off of trees or something (laughs) weird. But. I just think they're amazing. And I also love Deinokyrus because it's the weirdest dinosaur ever with the <laughs> story of how its arms, people assumed that it was just like a truly massive Tyrannosaurus Ferocious, yeah. type thing. Yeah, and it turned out just being this humpbacked, plant eating weirdo. And then I also really like Alvarosaurids with their little chest claws and just, yeah, they're just also super funny. So-
2: I guess- The weirdest ones that we know the least about in terms of like, why were they the way they were? Mm -hmm.
0: I guess we both started with something really big Mm -hmm. and really like awesome when we were kids. And now we've switched over to like, well, what's the weirdest one now? Right. That's the one I like. I do
2: still like the sauropods.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I still love Ankylosaurus, but the weird ones
2: are
1: (laughs) a close second.
2: (laughs) Our next question is, what are your favorite non-Saurian extinct animals? Which is also hard to narrow down. But for me, I would say pterosaurs because, again, going with that weird theme, they were so weird. (laughs) And there's so much we don't know. Yeah. Although, yes, I've only read a fraction of the papers about pterosaurs compared to dinosaurs. So personally, I don't know too much about them. And it sounds like we keep learning more and more. Like there's a big paper came out recently about the colors and then... Of course, we've got, you know, the like things like Quetzalcoatlus with the giant heads. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Plus, they could fly, but they were so large.
1: Yeah,
0: the Ashtar kids with their, the description of them as being basically flying giraffes mm-hmm. with a really long, powerful beak is really crazy. And yes. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like.
2: I'll say I probably am also a little bit biased towards pterosaurs because Petrie, Land Before Time.
0: Yeah. He was cute.
2: He was, and you know, he was he was part of the the group, <laughs> the gang. Yeah, <laughs> that's
0: true. So you sort of associated pterosaurs like most people do. So mm-hmm. You associate pterosaurs with dinosaurs from a young age. Yeah, for me, I would probably say atosaurs and glyptodonts because they're basically like ankylosaurs from other times. <laughs> you know, they're huge animals with armor, basically, and sometimes spiky tails or just spikes sticking out of them. And I like that. But I also love tons of other animals, too many to list, but I'm going to list some. So in the sea, sea creature wise, elasmosaurs, I think are super cool or plesiosaurs, just Mm -hmm. the ones with the really long skinny necks. They also have four flippers that they probably used in a really interesting sort of dance like movement to go through the water we don't think they flipped them like regular flippers like mm-hmm. you see like oars going through the water it was probably more of like a i don't know egg beater
1: style <laughs>
0: movement kind of thing it was really interesting i also think megalodon would be so cool to see because it's the biggest shark ever and i also find sharks fascinating also early whales like ambulocetus the mammals that went back into the ocean oh yeah such a crazy thing to do because there was plenty of stuff already in the ocean the fact that this weird wolf type animal decided or slowly evolved time to go back yeah (laughs) so strange super cool to see also giant insects usually creep me out but i love meganura the giant dragonfly i would love to see that thing imagine
2: that buzzing by your ear
0: I I would love to know what it sounded like. Mm -hmm. Did it sound like a bird flapping its wings? Or did since it had those four wings, did it just sound like a crazy, like a drone? Basically, I don't know. It'd be really interesting. And there's tons of interesting recent stuff too, like mammoths, saber-toothed cats, moas, terror birds. Mm -hmm. It's like basically an endless list of extinct animals that are my favorites.
2: (laughs) Dodos, what did they actually look like?
0: Yeah, it would be cool to know.
2: So related to that question, Garrett, do you have ancient plant or fungal life that you find interesting?
0: Yes. Um, There's a really cool plant that I know you know about called azola, which I really like. (laughs) It's also known as mosquito fern, duckweed fern, fairy moss, or water fern.
2: I like fairy moss the best.
0: It is a good one. Yeah. Duckweed fern and mosquito fern don't sound particularly appealing, but I like the name so much that you probably remember. I tried to convince you to name our daughter that briefly, mm-hmm. but it is too weird of a name. Probably <laughs> <laughs> no one would ever know what it was. She would go her whole life explaining what her name is to everybody. Right. And so, how to
2: spell it probably.
0: Yes. Cause it's spelled A-Z-O-L-L-A, which isn't really obvious but it's such a cool plant. So it floats on the surface of water and it fixes nitrogen directly from the atmosphere. It's one of those fancy plants. Technically, it fixes nitrogen with the help of bacteria in a symbiosis, which is always the case for plants that quote unquote fix nitrogen. It's really a bacteria that does it with the help of the plant and they sort of live with each other. But the coolest thing is the Azola event it's called, which was about 50 million years ago, and. It was a quote-unquote event because the azola grew to cover rivers leading to the Arctic Ocean and possibly covered most of the Arctic Ocean itself.
2: That'd be so crazy (laughs) to see.
0: Yeah, even though azola is a freshwater plant, it might have either been sort of collecting condensation in it or there might have been some sort of inversion type situation with a little bit of freshwater sitting on top of the saltwater since it's less dense. But in any case, the azola can double in size in just under two days. Similar to duckweed, if you've ever had an aquarium or you've seen it on a lake, it's these little tiny, tiny lily pad looking things that can spread like crazy. It's an invasive plant in a lot of places. But in the case of the Azolla event, it lasted about 800,000 years, they think. Huge amounts of Azolla collected at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, just like happened with, say, when coal formed, where it was a bunch of trees falling down and there weren't plants and animals eating Those trees, yet, and then eventually they got compressed down into coal. Mm -hmm. Similar ish kind of thing happened in the Arctic. And the hypothesis is that over those 800,000 years, so much of it grew and sank and collected at the bottom of the ocean that it actually was a massive carbon sink that helped cool the Earth by sucking so much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So I like that it shows how Earth can recover from global warming on its own in a fancy way, although I should say 800,000 years is a very long time to wait. So humans <laughs> can't really use this to solve our problems.
2: Right. But Earth and nature in general will be fine.
0: Yes, exactly. I just I think it's a cool story, basically, that this little tiny plant that looks like nothing just achieved this amazing stuff. And it's also <laughs> just a fun, cool word, too. Yeah. So look up a Zola if you've never seen it, which you probably haven't because I hadn't till recently.
2: Or fairy moss. Yeah. (laughs) Next we have, I feel like this has been mentioned before, but did you have a favorite dinosaur toy growing up? I had to think about this for a while because I kind of forgot what dinosaur toys I had. Mm -hmm. But I had this, it was either a brontosaurus or a Potosaurus stuffed animal that I liked to think was Littlefoot. I don't think it actually was. I think it was just a generic stuffed animal sauropod. It was kind of purplish. Oh,
0: well, Littlefoot was kind of purplish in some of the drawings because those color kind of changed depending on the paint for that frame.
2: That's true. <laughs> but then I was looking up, I guess, more recent Littlefoot stuffed animals who looks just a lot more like the character. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. That's what makes me think this one was more generic.
0: Might have been inspired by Littlefoot.
2: Could be, yeah. But it was small and I could cuddle with it. And I liked it.
0: That sounds like a good one. Yeah. I had a T-Rex grabber toy that I got at the Milwaukee County Zoo when I was a kid. And they the Milwaukee County Zoo had this thing. I think they had it a few years. Maybe they still do it sometimes, where they bring in the dinosaur animatronics. And so I went one summer, and I found this little grabber toy, and I really liked it. And I ended up with it somehow. I don't know if I saved up my pennies or my parents just bought it for me. But it was really cool. I picked up all sorts of stuff with it. I was always chomping with it. But my biggest favorite was a winter hat shaped like a stegosaurus, that I had. It was red with blue spikes and it had big ear flaps that made it really comfortable in the snow. And I just, yeah, I loved that hat. That was my all-time favorite. It wasn't really (laughs) a toy per se. The grabber thing was a better toy, but I liked that Stegosaurus hat better than almost anything. (laughs) And I've got a really long answer coming up. (laughs) So before I get into that, I want to take a quick sponsor break. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
2: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu/dinodig you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again that is cncc.edu/dinodig D I N O D I G.
0: BP added more than 70 billion dollars to the US economy in 2022.
2: turned into a fun mini-conversation on our Discord, so I'm just going to read the question part of it for now. Assuming the most average, non-spherical, non-vacuum human would suddenly blink and find themselves in a non-tumultuous area of the early Triassic, mid-Jurassic, or end-Cretaceous, how much time would you give them for a 50% chance at survival in each period?
0: yeah i like the the average non-spherical non-vacuum i think that's a nod to like engineering questions where you make these crazy assumptions which <laughs> are always things that don't ever exist but anyway so yeah it sparked a really good discussion on our discord i didn't realize the non-tumultuous part of it because i have some tumultuousness in my answers i guess it depends on how tumultuous mm. you consider cuz the entire time period was basically tumultuous but My assumptions are that we'd show up wearing clothes. It's kind of important because as humans, our our hairless primate bodies don't do so well without clothes. And it would help us survive, especially through the night, because we don't do well. Basically, below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, you get hypothermia. There really isn't much you can do about it if you don't have shelter or clothes, Mm -hmm. which is four degrees Celsius, by the way. And it's much worse if we're wet. And a lot of places... In the Mesozoic, we're wet. So that could be trouble. I'm also assuming we're getting teleported relative to the continent we're on because the continents obviously shifted all over the place. So we're in California. So I'm going to assume we're going to land in the part of the North American plate that is California in the future or in the past, not in the future.
2: (laughs) We're in the future.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we're the future. (laughs) And then I'm also assuming that we're teleported exactly at ground level, not a thousand feet in the air like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So <laughs> if if the ground changed in height, we're going to teleport to that height. Mm-hmm. So starting with the early Triassic, one big problem for us would be the climate, probably more so than the animals even that were around at the time. So CO2 concentrations were several times what they are today. And that probably wouldn't be a direct problem for us. At high levels, carbon dioxide can cause headaches, dizziness, nausea, and drowsiness. And that has occurred with people exposed to 5,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide over the course of several hours. And the early Triassic was only about half that, but several hours of 5,000 ppm versus an indefinite period of time at say 2,500, I'm not sure. It could become a big problem for us, all that carbon dioxide, breathing it nonstop every day. There's no escaping it. So we might get really sleepy or have some problems with our brains so yeah that's not great
2: yep never great to have a problem with the brain
0: no (laughs) a bigger problem potentially though with the co2 is that it created massive global warming so the sea surface temperature in the tropics in the early cretaceous was about 40 degrees celsius or 104 degrees fahrenheit Hmm. that's the water temperature Ooh, that's higher than a typical hot tub that's actually the maximum setting on a lot of hot tubs, but most people find it too hot. Typically, it was, it's like two to four degrees Fahrenheit or one to two degrees Celsius cooler than that that people set their hot tubs to. So imagine the hottest hot tub you've ever been in, but basically all of the tropics are that temperature in the water.
2: Talking about time travel and hot tubs which just reminds me of hot tub time machine.
0: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's also about five degrees or nine degrees Fahrenheit hotter than the hottest sea surface temperatures that we've seen at least since we started collecting data additionally the continents were clustered around the tropics more so than they are today and given the lack of ice caps if you're near a coast like we are there's a decent chance you'd show up miles and miles from shore in that intense hot tub mm. so there's a really good odds that you wouldn't be able to swim back to shore before dying of heat exhaustion. And that's without even worrying about the sea creatures that are in there. So that would be a huge problem. Then there was also an incredibly large desert across much of Pangaea. So a lot of people live in cities that are in those places now. So if you showed up there, it would be like trying to survive in an inhospitable desert today. You know, it's trouble.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: With a capital T.
0: So assuming that you didn't show up in the desert or an extremely hot ocean. The early Triassic atmosphere, in addition to being a very high level of carbon dioxide, was a very low amount of oxygen. So it was only about 10 to 12% oxygen compared to 21% today. It's roughly equivalent to being at three to four miles or five to six kilometers of elevation on a mountain. That's a big change. It's very high. So you'd probably get some sort of altitude sickness right away. And running isn't going to be an option because that reduced oxygen level. Just moving around to build a fire and collect water would probably be very difficult. And if you can't collect water in those temperatures, you're not going to last very long. So I'm guessing, because the question was 50% survival, that about half of us would make it for about a day before the lack of oxygen, lack of water, or too much hot water finally did us in.
2: Oh, that's not long.
0: No. And that doesn't, I mean... I don't think the animals necessarily would be a huge problem given all those other factors.
2: Right. You might want to get eaten by an animal (laughs) to save yourself from the other problems.
0: Could be. The Jurassic was definitely much more hospitable weather-wise. Oxygen levels were higher. Carbon dioxide levels were much lower. And there was less of the whole massive desert and crazy hot sea surface issue that you had in the early Triassic. However... That animals would have been a much bigger problem by the time you get mm-hmm. to the Jurassic. I found some really interesting accounts that the reason animals often are afraid of people is because we're bipedal, huh? which sounds weird when you just say like we're bipedal, so animals are afraid of us. Mm-hmm. One hypothesis is that animals tend to rear up when they're in a threatening
2: posture. Oh, so we always look like we're in a threatening (laughs) posture.
0: Exactly. So it's possible that like us just walking around, a lot of animals just think that we're threatening everything around (laughs) as we're walking. But it could also just be that being bipedal, we're way taller pound for pound than really any other animal since we're basically just balancing Mm -hmm. on end. So... It could be that we're so much taller than things and animals really do respect height quite a bit. You know, they always rear up. They're always trying to make themselves look bigger. Mm -hmm. Could be why things like Spinosaurus had that big sail on their back. So it's possible that in the Triassic, since a lot of things were pretty short, we might have been able to sort of skate by. We might have startled some of the things around us. It might have been that they're more afraid of us than we are of them situation in the Triassic. But by the Jurassic, there were lots of things that were taller than us. Mm Mm-hmm. Instead of having crocodilians and dinosaur morphs and other shorter creatures for the most part in the Triassic, in the Jurassic you've got tons of large carnivores and herbivores which would have been significantly taller than us. And you do have to worry about herbivores too because they might see you as a threat and want to get rid of you.
2: Just burrow with the fellow mammals.
0: Yeah, that that would be probably a pretty good strategy. Fortunately, the oxygen levels in the Jurassic... Were high enough that we could probably run and or climb to try to find a way to get away from them or dig into a burrow. That would be another option. Again, the biggest problem would be getting clean drinking water. So half of us would probably succumb to dehydration after about a week. But in either ecosystem, we wouldn't have the food that we evolved relying on. Angiosperms hadn't evolved yet. So we probably can't get all the vitamins and minerals we need from the environment. You can't get all of it from meat. You have to get some of it from plants that we evolved around. Mm -hmm. It's just how we evolved. We evolved in this specific ecosystem, which is why it's important we got to protect it. Because if we get rid of all the plants that we evolved eating and needing for our vitamins, it's going to be a huge problem for us. So in a best case scenario where you were fully equipped with everything but food, we'd probably last, I would say, less than a year before getting malnourished by some lack of some vitamin or mineral or something. Hmm that we don't have access to. So, yeah. I think if you're using fires and careful shelters, we could do reasonably well at avoiding predators, but the other aspects of the environment would be the really big problem. The low oxygen levels, the crazy heat, and the lack of any plants to eat.
2: <laughs> then you go to the end Cretaceous and you really have to worry about the animals.
0: Yes. That would probably be the the farthest the most extreme where you'd have to maybe worry the least about food. Maybe there are some angiosperms that are producing the vitamins and stuff we need. You might be able to eat flowers, like how you need tulips and you can get certain stuff out of those. Might be able to pull off a decent diet in the late Cretaceous. But then, like you said, you've got some really nasty predators running around.
2: Or if you're there just at the very end of the Cretaceous, you got to worry about that asteroid.
0: Oh, <laughs> That's true, too. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's my answer. I know it was long. But it it was really fun to go down sort of analyzing what would be the biggest threats.
2: Sounds like we humans would not do well.
0: No. We evolved in this time period. And it's the time period on Earth where we're basically doing the best.
2: hmm We scare all the animals just by walking around the neighborhood.
1: Yep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Our next question is what's the coolest fossil you have found or seen? There's only one fossil that I found and it was a piece of eggshell when we went on our dinosaur dig in Montana, which was really cool. It was not clear which dinosaur it belonged to because with eggshells, it's just really tricky. Mm -hmm. But I'm happy that I was able to find a piece.
0: Yeah, that was cool. It was probably a theropod, presumably.
2: Possibly, yeah. In terms of a fossil that we've seen... The first one that came to mind for me was Boreal Pelta. Oh, yeah? yeah? I know.
1: Picking
0: an ankylosaur?
2: Well, we just talk about it so much.
0: It is really cool.
2: <laughs> and then I was thinking, oh, that might be the same as what Garrett says. So to be a little bit different, but same museum, Black Beauty, also really cool. And I mean, Dippy made a huge impression on me, but Dippy is a few different fossils put together. So I don't know if Dippy counts. But when I was a kid, I remember visiting my grandparents who lived in England at the time there and I saw Dippy and that was part, you know, that along with Land Before Time was like, yeah, dinosaurs are really cool.
0: Yeah. Well, and the Dippy that's in England is also a replica. So you got to be. Yes. The coolest original is probably Borealopelta, but the coolest reconstruction maybe is Dippy. So for me, Borealopelta and Black Beauty, the T-Rex at the Royal Tyrell are definitely two of my favorites. My Desktop background is Black Beauty because it stretches across oh, all monitors. True. Maybe really that's well.
2: what I was thinking. We talk about Boreal Pelta <laughs> a lot, and then I see your Black Beauty desktop all the time. So those two are at the forefront of my mind. <laughs>
0: yeah, and they're both at the same museum. <laughs> yeah, very cool. My second favorite after Boreal Pelta though is probably Zool at the Royal Ontario Museum. That one is amazing. Another ankylosaur. It's just so cool.
2: So we're going back to ankylosaurids for you in terms of favorites because we didn't mention we did see a giant therizinosaurus claw at the fukui museum in japan but mm.
0: yeah yeah those are cool we don't have that complete the completeness helps yeah when you're looking at a display of something and when you know that it's you know just based on a couple bones that we found it's a little bit less cool but we do have some pretty complete therizinosaurus which are really neat but i haven't personally seen those
2: Our next question is, what makes Velociraptor and other feathered dinosaurs dinosaurs and not birds? Which is a good question. Sent me down a bit of an Eryctodromeus burrow here. (laughs) We will actually talk about this a bit more in an upcoming episode in just a few weeks. More about what makes a dinosaur a dinosaur. So then I was kind of having to flip it. What makes a bird a bird versus what makes a dinosaur a dinosaur? Now, birds and dinosaurs, they have a lot of things in common. You know, they lay eggs, they use visual signals, they have wishbones. It's really hard to know exactly which bird was the first bird. We're going to just need more fossils, just like everything else. Hashtag need more fossils. But birds do tend to be smaller than their ancestors. Modern birds also have toothless beaks, and there's just a lot of beak diversity you think about. Flamingos versus sparrows versus, I don't know, ostriches. Mm -hmm. Birds retained some juvenile characteristics of their ancestors. And that means that they had a more juvenile-like skull shape as adults. Though Their faces got smaller, but their eyes, their brains, and their beaks got larger compared to their ancestors. It seems like it's really hard to draw a line. Yes. Birds, you know, they evolved a lot of features over time. Feathers, wings, things like that. Once they had these key features in place, though, they evolved really quickly. Now, just bringing up Velociraptor, since that was in the question, that was our Dinosaur of the Day in episode 83. It's a Dromaeosaurid. It's closely related to birds. The current thought is that Silurosaurs are the closest relatives, and that includes Dromaeosaurs, Manoraptorans, compsognathids, Tyrannosaurs, Ornithomimosaurs, And we're thinking that birds are manoraptorans that originated in the Mesozoic. And birds, just as a general thing, they evolved around 150 million years ago. And modern birds evolved in the Cretaceous.
0: Yeah, I would say the most obvious thing to look for in modern times between a bird and a not a bird is the feathers, because we don't have anything else with feathers running around. Mm -hmm. But back then, feathers were not a very good signal because lots of dinosaurs had feathers, birds had feathers, pterosaurs might have had feathers. Yep. (laughs) There are probably a lot of feathered things. So the thing to look for then would probably be more like the wings. You'd be looking at, do they have wings that can create either sustained flight or something more like flight? Their legs are probably a little bit shorter. And it, it would probably be more related to that musculature for the wings and the size of the wings That would be the key indicator for a bird rather than the feathers. Yeah. So Velociraptor had fairly small arms and way too much leg and too heavy of a body relative to the size of its arms to be anything too bird-like.
2: I think you also go back to the skull shape, what that looks like. And did these adult birds look a little more like juveniles?
0: Yeah, I think that might be a little bit of a hindsight bias, though, because whether or not something like an, ant- an anti-ornithine or something that has teeth and doesn't necessarily look like a bird from today, but it could fly and it it had the same chest muscles and all that kind of stuff. I think it, it does depend though. Some people include in birds all of the stuff that spent a lot of time flying and had a few adaptations. Other people only want to include the ones that are the closest relatives to modern birds. So it kind of depends on where you want to draw the line, and it is far from settled.
2: Yes, yes.
0: We know that Velociraptor is definitely on the not bird side, but we don't know how close they were to it.
2: Yeah, and they they were still closely related. Yes. So, good question. Our next question is: Which fossil most seems to be missing from the record, but you hope or expect to be found? Maybe a feathered T-Rex, or do you expect to be surprised, like with the pterodactyl recently announced from the Isle of Skye?
0: So for feathers, I think there are a lot of missing fossils. We mostly have evidence for small feathered dinosaurs. I think the largest feathered dinosaur we have is Euteranus, which name literally means feathered tyrannosaur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, a cool name. Personally, I would love to see a large predatory dinosaur covered in interesting feathers. I'd also be thrilled with a Therizinosaurus or a Dinokyrus covered in feathers too we we think they had feathers based on close relatives but we haven't actually found feathered ones for t-rex i'm not quite so sure because they were quite a bit bigger and they were in an ecosystem where you might not expect to see many feathers it's possible that they had them when they were young and then they lost them as they got bigger or maybe they just had some for display who knows i would yeah everybody always wants to see more of t-rex so there's definitely Plenty of missing bits of T Rex. Mm -hmm. Also, just the arms. We have very few arm fossils of T Rex. It would be nice to get more of those so we could get a little more detail on that. And especially seeing other Tyrannosaurs on the way to Tyrannosaurus and how their arms shrank. Also, with Alvarosaurids, their arms shrinking. And a lot of these dinosaurs where their arms shrank, it would be really cool to see more of that transition. But I would say with feathers, given that early pterosaurs have been found with feathers. The simple answer is that feathers evolved even before true dinosaurs evolved, so they'll probably end up popping up all over the dinosaur family tree eventually because they likely all had the DNA that coded for it. It's just a gene expression Mm -hmm. sort of issue. I don't think that's particularly missing, but it would be interesting. The more dinosaurs we find with feathers, it'll help fill our view of what these animals looked like. The dinosaur fossil, I think, that is the most conspicuously missing is definitely a really early Ornithischian. So the consensus is that dinosaurs are split into Saurischians and Ornithischians. That is still the widely accepted consensus. We have Saurischians dating back to 230 to 240 million years ago. But the oldest Ornithischian we have is only about 200 million years ago.
2: Oh, that's a big gap.
0: Yeah, it's a huge gap. Of There are no early Ornithischians. Where are the, the 30 to 40 million years of Ornithischians <laughs> after dinosaurs evolved? So either we haven't found them or they evolved from basal dinosaurs at that point. And there's just a weird ghost lineage of other stuff that led to Ornithischians. Or we have the dinosaur family tree totally wrong. Hmm. And that's the Ornithischalida solution is that Instead of having Saurischia that was 230 to 240 million years ago and Ornithischia, which was way more recent, you pull the theropods out of Saurischia and group them with Ornithischians into Ornithoscolida. So now you've basically got Sauropods (laughs) and then you've got the theropods and Ornithischians together. And since theropods go all the way back to 230 to 240 million years ago, that would get both of those main groups all the way back to the origins of dinosaurs, which is why I liked it so much when that theory was proposed or hypothesis was proposed because I thought it cleaned it up nicely. Yeah, But it wasn't widely accepted, so I have let it go. And Well, for
2: now, <laughs> things might pop up again.
0: Yes, but we need to figure this thing out. The Ornithischian, early Ornithischians, that Triassic research that is often forgotten about. People focus more on Jurassic and Cretaceous stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. Partly because there is so much more of it. The farther back you go in time, the harder it is to find fossils. But yeah, so there's a lot of Triassic stuff that's missing. I would like I to I will see. say,
2: I think there might be a growing number of people studying Triassic just based on the last SVP, hearing the talks and talking to different paleontologists in their work.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people have recognized we we're missing some of these fundamentals about early dinosaurs that would be good to know.
2: Mm-hmm. The next question is, what is and isn't known about dinosaur skin? How is it known? Soft tissue preservation?
0: So we actually know a surprising amount about skin, given just how unlikely it is for soft tissue to fossilize and to be found 100 million years later. There isn't any skin that's preserved in anything close to its original condition, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. At best, in terms of the original skin itself, There's basically a thin film of material that's high in carbon, usually black, and can be identified as basically fossilized skin. But in practice, it's almost more like a chalk outline of where the animal was when it died and where its limbs were and where its skin was. And sometimes that can be misleading too because the skin can kind of slough off a little bit as it decomposes before it fossilizes. We can get a little information from the skin in those cases, especially for dinosaurs with wing membranes, because it can show the outline of where the wing was. Sometimes it also gives an outline of where skin was on limbs or the torso, too, so you can get a better idea of you know how the meat was on the bones, because we just didn't know for a long time how much skin, you know, how far away the skin was from the bone. They could have a lot of fat and muscle or they could be really skinny. It's hard to tell when you're just looking at bones. The skin can really help with that. And we can also do some chemical analysis, for example, showing that they had the same type of keratin we'd expect to see in reptile skin, not mammal hair. So there is there is some cool stuff you can do with the actual fossilized skin. But from that preserved skin, we can't see the color or how thick the skin was. We also usually can't see scale patterns or usually if it had feathers. And it's also often limited to very small pieces. For example, say a postcard size piece of fossilized skin. So you don't get a very good idea about the whole animal Mm. and its outline in general. Better than nothing. It definitely is. Yeah. And if you find enough of them, you can piece something together. I personally think the skin impressions are more exciting most of the time. They give a really good picture of the scale patterning and the size of the limb or foot or whatever it was that made the impression, because then you're actually, you're not getting this already dead and slightly modified skin. That's probably part of the way through the decomposition process. You're getting an impression of the skin on an actual living animal leaning up against something or sitting down or taking a step. And we've recreated things like the fleshy foot pads from skin impressions in footprints, which I think is so cool. Mm-hmm. We've also learned a lot about the geometric shapes and patterns of scales on some dinosaurs by looking at these skin impressions. So it is super cool. But there are some that preserve the skin really well. For example, like Borealopelta that has skin and keratin basically preserved on its body. And you can see some of the detail there. But yeah.
2: are few and far between.
0: Yeah. And the main things we're missing is basically all the stuff you'd like to know when you're drawing it how big the skin is, you know, what the texture of it was specifically in a lot of cases, what color it was, and we only have little bits and pieces here and there to sort of combine and give best guesses about.
2: Gives you a lot of artistic license. That's for sure. Our next question is, do you have a routine for how you do the research for each episode, like checking particular sources to get fun facts or info on the dinosaur of the day? And I'll start with this one. Yes. Uh, usually it takes several days to a week for me to do a dinosaur of the day unless it's a really in-depth or long one. Then sometimes it's multiple weeks or, you know, if we have the milestone episode that takes sometimes a couple months. Yeah,
0: <laughs> Sabrina's good at planning those out.
2: I start by finding all the sources I can and then I spend a lot of time reading and distilling the information, double-checking the sources to make sure that, you know, they're reputable sources and then I piece it together in as best way I can to tell a story. When it comes to our news items, we have Google Alerts set up. People sometimes also share articles with us. Thank you. It's a lot of the people who have sent these uh, questions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we also recently started getting more of a heads up from journals when there's some big news items or big articles coming out, which is like, yay, we're growing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's nice because then sometimes we get the embargoed papers mm-hmm. and we can prepare an episode that'll come out right when the news story drops. Or which at is least really very fun.
2: close to when it comes out. Yeah, rather <laughs> than just being
0: perpetually a week or two behind.
2: <laughs> yes. There's also the dinosaur mailing list is a great resource. And we do a fair amount of research for our interviews as well in terms of you know, who we're talking to and what work that they've done and what papers have they published or the books that are coming out, because we want to be able to ask questions that dive a little bit deeper than just, you know, the basics.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the early days, we would ask lots of questions that weren't in paleontologist wheelhouse and they would say, you should talk to this person or I'm not sure about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It really helps if you're familiar with what specifically they've studied. So for my pieces of it, I usually start with the news which we get from, like you said, all sorts of different sources. But lately, I've just been diving into the peer-reviewed articles without reading interpretations first, so it doesn't color my view of the research. And then I'll read other people's reactions, if they're available, especially if the paper seems like it's making bold claims, so I can see sort of what the paleontological reaction is to it within There's the community.
2: been a few of those already this year.
0: Yes. <laughs> then for me, if one of those news stories leads me down a deep rabbit hole, because I'm always trying to figure out the best way to explain the different stories, then I'll use that sort of background research I'm doing to figure out some detail of a news story. And I'll use that as a fun fact, because if I find it really interesting, I assume someone else might find it interesting too. Mm -hmm. And then I can do it that way. Otherwise, if there aren't any news stories that lead me down some new crazy rabbit hole, I have a list Mm -hmm. of things that I'd like to figure out the answer to. Actually, the the really long answer I gave about how long you'd survive in the Mesozoic is the kind of thing that might end up as a fun fact because it'd be like, oh, that's an interesting thought. I could dive into that and have it as a fun fact. (laughs) Say, you know, my fun fact in that case would be like, you'd only survive a day in the Mesozoic or you probably wouldn't even, but it's not because of the animals, it's because of the environment, et cetera. You also
2: like to tie in the fun facts to our episode. If we can get enough news items that make a theme or the topics we discuss in our interviews, if there's a way to make sure they all fit together.
0: Yeah, yeah. We do sometimes try to tie everything together.
2: <laughs> the next question is, is there a specific specimen you want to visit and see someday? For me, I was thinking Leonardo. That's that mummy brachylophosaurus at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. There's that's some, a cool one. Yeah, just because I like seeing the mummified type dinosaurs.
0: Is very lifelike mm-hmm. or dying like <laughs> in the case of well, it doesn't look as serene and just like it laid down like borealopelta does in that case. <laughs>
2: sure, <laughs> but it's cool that so much stuff got preserved. Mm-hmm. Then I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole and I was looking up, okay, what other specimens are out there? Because I generally look at the papers or, you know, for dinosaur of the day, I'm looking at a genus, not particular specimens, mm-hmm. unless it's just the holotype. But anyway, so there's some other really cool sounding ones. There's like a whole Wikipedia page of just dinosaur specimens with nicknames.
0: <laughs> That's a good place to start.
2: Yeah. Which I don't think it's a full list. They might not have all of them. but I'm sure it's not. Yeah. But some of the ones that stood out to me, there's Pink Iggy at Dinosaur Isle, an Isle of Wight. And it's named Pink Iggy for its pink bones. So that would be cool to see.
0: Is it an iguanodon? Is that why it's called Iggy?
2: Yes, it's an iguanodon.
0: That would be cool. I don't think I've ever seen a pink dinosaur fossil before.
2: Me either. Before our trip to Australia, I would have said an opalized fossil.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are super cool.
2: We saw that and it was amazing. I wouldn't mind seeing those again.
0: We didn't list those in the coolest dinosaur fossils we've seen. Those were pretty epic.
2: Oh, yeah. There's also the holotype of brontosaurus at the Peabody Museum of Natural History in Connecticut because I still love brontosaurus. Mm -hmm. And I really want to see the Peabody Museum. This, of course, this doesn't include all the museums that I want to see around the world, but I don't know exactly what specimens these museums have, so (laughs) it's more like I've just got a list of places to go and see what I can see.
0: That is usually how we do it. It's a list of museums more than a list of specimens. (laughs) But yeah, there are some specific dinosaurs that I would like to see. I'd like to see CMN 8880 at the Canadian Museum of Nature. That's the ankylosaurus skull in Ottawa, Canada, the largest ankylosaurus skull ever found at about 66 centimeters or two foot, two inches wide. That would be super awesome. Aside from that, I've really got spikes and spines on my mind lately. So I want to see all this stuff the neotype of Spinosaurus, especially the tail, which I think is currently in Chicago, but I'm not sure. Spicomelus, the rib with the spiky osteoderms sticking out of it, which is probably from an ankylosaur. I would love to see that. There's Bahatosaurus, the sauropod with big forward curving spines. <laughs> yeah, It's like a Margosaurus, but they curve forward towards its head in a really interesting way. I would love to see that. And then both a Margosaurus and Aranosaurus I would I would love to see those, too. Aranosaurus, too, just being mm-hmm. big sail on the back of an herbivore is fascinating to me.
2: Yes, same.
0: we got to go to Europe for those, though.
2: We've seen displays of Aranosaurus.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see the original fossils, though.
2: Mm-hmm. We've got one more question in our Q&A episode. It's, have any dinosaur fossils been found in Antarctica? Is there any chance any skin, bones, etc., could be locked in the permafrost? If not dinosaurs, ancient mammals?
0: This is another Eryctodromeus burrow level question that I would... rabbit hole, yeah. Yeah, that would usually end up as a fun fact in a typical episode if I read this question on our Discord or just came up with it on my own. So there have been dinosaurs found in Antarctica. We mentioned Cryolophosaurus. It was found on Mount Kirkpatrick, deep in Antarctica, only about 400 miles from the South Pole, actually. It was during that discovery that they also found a prosauropod, which much later was named Glacialosaurus, and they found, quote unquote, teeth from scavenging theropods Mm. as well, and a pterosaur humerus, as well as a tritylodont molar. I think that's a mammal, I'm guessing. Hmm. Don't really know how to pronounce it. Not a dinosaur. There's also been discoveries from much easier to access parts of Antarctica, not way up the side of a mountain near the South Pole most notably is probably James Ross Island that includes the first Antarctic dinosaur discovery, which was Antarctopelta, a ankylosaur. It was found back in 1986, but it actually wasn't named until 2006. Cryolophosaurus was found a little bit later, but named pretty quickly. So that was the first named dinosaur from Antarctica. Unfortunately, Antarctopelta is not in the best shape because it's since it's in a much warmer part of Antarctica, there are actually freeze thaw cycles there, Ooh. which really tear the bones apart. When you go up a mountain on the side, <laughs> like near the South Pole, it's super cold all the time. Mm-hmm. It's never thawing. So it actually was in better shape, the cryolophosaurus material. It's
2: probably why it took a while to name Antarctopelta.
0: I think so, Yeah. We also didn't have the types of bones that you really like to have when you're looking at an ankylosaur, basically a complete skull with all that skull ornamentation. Unfortunately, we can't find any frozen skin or other remains of non-avian dinosaurs on Antarctica. The oldest ice on Antarctica is about 800,000 years old. It is the oldest ice in the world, but that's way too recent for non-avian dinosaurs. Back when dinosaurs were roaming Antarctica, it was actually farther north and didn't have year-round ice if really any ice. It's possible that there could have been frozen mammals or birds stuck in that ice though, so we might be able to si- find you know, some mammal from 600,000 years ago or something if it was in Antarctica at the time. The main mammals around Antarctica are seals, So it's definitely possible that one of those could get stuck on the ice one way or another and get frozen there. Oh, no. But I think birds are probably a lot more likely because there's lots of birds. You know, there's penguins, there's skuas, there's lots of birds that are, I think, Arctic terns, other stuff around Antarctica. And sometimes they get blown off course and end up pretty deep. People that are in research stations fairly close to the South Pole sometimes see birds and they're like, oh, I don't know if this bird's going to make it back. Mm-hmm. So there's a decent chance that one of those would fall out of the sky or lay down and then get buried in snow and then that gets compressed into ice. And so there might be some stuck there. Actually, I would almost guarantee there is one stuck somewhere. Whether or not we'll find it is a different question. It would be amazing, though, if there was like a Moa-type bird frozen in ice somewhere. Oh, yeah. But Antarctica hasn't been particularly hospitable for the last 800,000 years, so there's a decent chance that the only kind of stuff we'll find in the ice frozen there is really similar to the kind of stuff that's already there today. But it could still be interesting. You know, we could find an ancestor to, say, an emperor penguin or something frozen in there that's hundreds of thousands of years old. That'd be cool. Yeah. I think that's the best we can hope for, though. Definitely, there's a surprising amount of paleontology that happens in Antarctica and a decent number of dinosaurs that have been found there, though. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty cool. And now we're going to take one more quick sponsor break and then on to our dinosaur of the day.
2: And now, onto our dinosaur of the day, Proa, which was a request from Crow via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. Proa was a basal iguanodont that lived in the early Cretaceous in what is now Teruel Province, Spain, in the Escucha Formation. It looks like other iguanodonts. It had the long tail, the bulky body, could walk on all fours. It also had a relatively large head, and it was pretty stocky. It's estimated to be 23 to 26 feet, or 7 to 8 meters long. The type and only species is Proa valderinoensis. It was described in 2012 by Andrew McDonald and others, and the genus name Proa means prow and refers to the pointed shape of the predentary bone, the lower jaw, that looks like the bow on a boat.
0: The prow of a boat? Yeah. So it's sort of, that reminds me of like a trireme or one of those boats that has that bulging bottom, <laughs> like sort of <laughs> underneath the water or just above the water. Or just a very prominent chin, mm. I suppose.
2: The species name Valdearinoensis refers to Valdearino, the traditional name for the coal mines near where the fossils were found. At least six individuals have been found, including a partial skeleton and nearly complete skull. There are five specimens that were described in the paper about it. More than 340 bones were found. Originally, Proa was reported in 2005 as fragmentary remains from an indeterminate basal iguanodont. It's a sister taxon to Batyrosaurus. The unique features of Proa include the predentary coming to a point at the rostral margin, the tip in the lower jaw there, and it helps fill a gap in the fossil record of basal European iguanodonts. Three brain cases have also been found. Two of them are well-preserved. Those brain cases have been CT scanned, and it was found that the encephalization quotient, the EQ, was about 3.6, which is pretty high.
0: It's an estimate for basically how smart it was in a way, Mm -hmm. basically the size of the brain compared to the size of the animal.
2: Yeah, and that helps show that there was a higher EQ for a short time in some ornithopods. It wasn't just in theropods. So it's been hypothesized that this higher EQ may have led to them living in groups and caring for their young.
0: Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah. Proa lived in a swampy environment with conifers, ferns, and flower plants. More than 11,000 fossils have been found in the area where Proa was found since 2010. Wow. Yeah. There's also been fossils found in amber in that area, often of insects, but also mammal hair and a fragment of a dinosaur feather. And... Recently, it's been found some blood-sucking mosquitoes and dinosaur fossils together, which means mosquitoes may have bit the dinosaurs.
0: Oh man, that is very Jurassic Parky.
2: I Yeah, it, was just, it doesn't mean we can do Jurassic Park stuff here.
0: But. Yeah, the DNA won't have survived, but that's still cool.
2: Yeah. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Proa include the Notosaurid, Europelta, Allosauroids, Iguanodontids, and Titanosauriforms. And other animals include fish, turtles, crocodiles, mammals, and insects. For a fun fact, I know normally Garrett does the fun facts, but I couldn't help myself on this one. <laughs> the word mark, M-A-R-K, is an important term in ichnology. There was a paper recently called Tooth Marks, Gnaw Marks, Claw Marks, Bite Marks, Scratch Marks, etc. Terminology in ichnology by <laughs> John Paul Zonneveld and others. And it was published in ICHNOS, an international journal for plant and animal traces. So it's all very fitting.
0: Mm -hmm. I've read ICHNOS before.
2: (laughs) So this paper, it's about linguistics. And something Garrett and I have noticed lately is that we can often connect dinosaurs with pretty much any topic. Yes. (laughs) So here we go. Dinosaurs in linguistics. The paper... One of the lines said, quote, is a descriptive science, and thus the definitions of words we use to describe and interpret trace fossils must be exact in their definitions and consistent between users. In other words, it's really important to use words consistently and clearly. And how a term was used historically also matters, especially in cross disciplines. And acknowledges often also cross into archaeology, anthropology, pathology, taphonomy, zoology forensic science and, of course, paleontology. So when you've got all these different sciences, you want to be able to use consistent terms. That Mm -hmm. makes sense. The paper also was talking about, you know, words that are more descriptive but more fluid in how they're used should be used carefully and, quote, honor their common meaning.
0: So mark is one of those words?
2: Yes. There's, according to the authors, and a term that has become too ambiguous is bite mark.
0: Oh, okay. Because it just means any tooth that makes a mark?
2: It's because there was a paper in 2015 that was trying to clarify words like trace, mark, and structure. And uh, the authors of this paper, I think, mostly liked the 2015 paper, but they disagreed with some of the definitions of the words, like mark, because the 2015 paper said the word mark was meant to refer to physical sedimentary structures like ripple marks or wrinkle marks, but that doesn't account for other uses of the word mark. Like if you're talking about marks with trace fossils, gnaw marks, scratch marks, puncture marks, claw marks, tooth marks. Mm. So I could see how that can get a little bit confusing. Now, mark can be a noun or a verb. We'll focus on the noun here. The origin of the noun quote likely derived from the West Saxon word "merk." I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right meaning trace, impression, or boundary, and may have been derived from the Latin margo or Sanskrit marga. End quote. It's also similar to the word mark in Swedish and merk in French. And uh, just looking at the Oxford English Dictionary, there are 41 definitions of the word mark.
0: Mm. It's too many.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I can see how it might be confusing then to only use one definition for it in technology. The author's Of this paper also said there's a lot of times the word mark has been used in the past century in vertebrate, taphonomic, and ichnological literature. They said bite mark is a term also used in many fields and, quote, is self-evident in its meaning, end quote. And they said bite mark is the most accessible term and clearer than a term like bioglyph or bite trace.
0: (laughs) Bioglyph. Yeah, that is not clear. No. Bite trace also is kind of weird sounding compared to bite mark. Yeah. I think because people have bite marks, right? Like if you bite into an apple, mm-hmm. you'd say like that's the bite mark in the apple. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say that's the bite trace.
2: Yeah, that's true. So it's just easier for us probably to associate it as bite mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also mentioned not using the term dentalite, which has been included in some papers in 2018 and 2021 to replace the terms bite marks and bite traces because that's a pretty obscure word and it makes it a little bit exclusionary if you're not an
0: Yes, I have never seen the word bioglyph or the word dentalite. dentalite.
2: <laughs> I haven't either, but it could be maybe we read it in a paper and then just kind of glossed over it because we're like, well, that's a different word.
0: I think we mostly see people that are sort of getting into ichnology from the dinosaur side mm-hmm. rather than ichnologists in- that are getting into dinosaurs. Oh, I see. So they're using the more accessible terms that aren't like just ichnologists using them.
2: yeah. But yeah, just another reason, too, because it's multidisciplinary. So you want to have these common terms that people know across different sciences.
0: So there, basically, there were people that have tried to limit the word mark. And there's this new group saying, now nah, we got to use mark. Mark is a good b- word.
2: Yeah, especially <laughs> bite mark.
0: Gotcha. <laughs> That's cool. It's good to clarify.
2: Yeah, Definitely. And, you know, we talk about bite marks all the time with dinosaurs. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. And again, don't worry, we will be on parental leave, but we will still be having new episodes come out that we've pre-recorded. If you want additional information for any of these upcoming episodes or, you know, previous episodes, we have links to all our sources in our show notes, and you can get that at inodino.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time